So open your Bibles if you have them. If you don't have them, just listen. Apologies, that's not on the screen. I'm going to go to Acts 10. Acts 10. And we're going to start in verse uh, 34 or so. This uh, chapter and these verses, I'm not going to tell you the specific one, but they're so good that I've got some of my passwords set to the verses in this chapter. Just so you know. If you ever need, if I, if I pass away or I ascend unto the Father at any given moment and you need to log in and my wife doesn't know the password, because I do keep some things from her. No, I don't. She knows all my passwords. Do you know all my passwords? Okay. Okay. I definitely don't. I don't even know our Amazon password because she changes it every other day, it feels like. on password that I said five times a week. Okay, so Acts, 30, Acts 10, 34. I'm going to start reading there. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and who does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one promised by God to be judged of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amen. So, LeBron James. I mention frequently that I try not to use sports analogies. So this isn't really a sports analogy. But I've been tainted by sports in my past, and therefore, things pop into my head. Uh, do you guys remember a few years ago? By the way... I know I'm in Los Angeles where people either die hard or could care less. LeBron James is the best basketball player on the planet currently. Um, he failed the Los Angeles Lakers and they did not make the playoffs. If that's news to most of you, that just happened this, this last month. Okay, while he was in Cleveland, the people of Ohio, you have to understand, we, we, met, we went to school in Ohio. It's a, it's a dreary place. Has, anyone from Ohio? That's why they're here. It's a dreary, dreary place. <laughs> and so LeBron James is from, from Ohio, and he, he, had, he had this whole thing. Again, best basketball player on the planet. He's a freak of nature, massive size. He's been, he's been like 6'8", 300 pounds, and been able to fly through the air, dunk a ball, and shoot it from, from miles away since he was 12. It's offensive. <laughs> so so he, he started making the NBA Finals like almost right away when he joined his hometown team, the Cleveland Cavaliers. 
And he came back, uh, well, for, then he left because he actually wanted to win the, the finals. And so he connived this little group of mighty men, and they, they ended up winning some finals in a, in a less dreary place called Miami. And then the Lord pierced his heart with conviction to go home to the dreariness of Ohio, and he went back. And then he, he was always a Nike guy. And who doesn't love a good Nike ad? Am I, am I right? I mean, I've cried at Nike ads multiple times, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. I love good marketing, I love good music, and I love when just slogans just like make my eyes well up, and I, it's just like, that was just a YouTube promo before my worship song from Bethel Music, and I'm watching, and my eyes are watering from that Nike ad. I do that on the regular. So anyway, he, he went back to Cleveland, and the, the, the whole city worshipped him. They would hang these massive banners all over town, billboards on front of the stadium, and it, and it would be something like in black with the king, King James, they call him. We are witnesses. Shh, Nike. We are witnesses. And I realized, as I, that came to mind as I was ruminating on this passage this week, and I realized that there's an interpretational element in that, which is, we are witnesses as in, if you're a Cleveland Cavalier fan, you're just watching, watching greatness, watching the king do his thing to revive a lost city and to bring you the championship throne scepter of whatever. King James, our savior, we are all witnesses. But there's a big issue with taking that definition of being witnesses and applying it here, because it had a lot more to do than just observing and telling someone, Jesus, he's awesome. Now, I think some people still interpret things this way. Uh, my heart hurts a little bit when I see people picketing with like big, big, ugly billboards, like you're going to hell, and let's, let's all go to the, to the gay pride festival, make really dark slogans on pickets and just yell at people that they're going to hell to let them know there's good news. We're witnesses. I think there's a lot of confusion about what that means. We're witnesses. It's not that. Spoiler alert. And that's what we're going to get into this morning. Uh, I'm a professor part-time. I teach, uh, I taught a lot more classes on ground when I was in Chicago. I uh, teach a few here and then online quite a bit. And I get to see students, mostly Bible school and seminary students, wrestling with things in the scriptures, in God's holy word, on the regular. And this week I, I was reading a blog by a, a seminary student. I don't actually know how I found it. And uh, it, was, it was really interesting. I'd like to share some of that with you. Would that be okay? Wonderful. Thank you for your permission. The student said something like this, and I think it can resonate. If it's not, not with your heart, then, um, then maybe with someone you might know. I cannot get this set up today. Too many things. This student named Morgan uh, said this. He goes, I've never known what to make of Easter. Again, this is a seminary student who's studying the word of God to go into some kind of ministry, I presume. For evangelicals, the big day is Good Friday when Jesus died for our sins, so we can avoid being tortured forever in hell. Stop there. That gives you a good taste of what the, the flavor in this student's mouth is. 
Uh, and in a positive light, this student is, is highly offended that that seems to be the flavor that many bring to the table on Easter morning. He, he goes on to share about uh, how he was at a recent Easter service, and some of it was good, but by and large, it felt to him like the same old, same old. That Jesus died for our sins so that we can avoid being tortured in hell for eternity. And I thought about that for a minute. And I, I like the fact that he is calling out so much of the world or the body of Christ that if that's the message that they're portraying, that that's the good news alone, then, then that's an issue. And I thought about that for a second, though. And one, I don't think that that's the, that's the message of the entire church. But it's interesting that truth has tension in it. Hell is a real place. Jesus' message wasn't hell. It'd be like this. It'd be like me saying something like, uh, instead of saying, why did Jesus die for my sins? And my answer is, so that I don't go and spend eternity in fire. That could be your answer. Why did Jesus die for your sins? Oh, so that I don't have to go to that fiery lake forever and burn there in utter torment and anguish. That could be your answer. And would, would, is there some level of truth to that, maybe? I mean, it's so offensive that that would be your answer that it's hard to even say yes. But even believing in hell, you could maybe make an argument that there's some level of truth in that, right? Okay. If someone asks you, hey, Krista, I notice you're a healthy eater. I've been to your house, always healthy meals. Why do you eat healthy? And Krista would respond something like, uh, so I don't die and just shrivel up into a corpse and turn into a cancerous tumor. <laughs> and there is some level of truth. I mean, I've literally watched people have healing in their body and, and fight cancer by what they eat. Some level of truth. But I would hope she would say something like, because eating healthy reminds me that my body is a temple of the living God. And what I consume bears good fruit when I put good things in. It makes me feel better, makes me healthier, happier, and it makes me mobile, agile, and hostile. I don't know what she could say, it could, but all, it could be very positive and much different from the alternative, right? How you answer the question is a big deal. It can have tension in the truth. What are we witnesses to? And what's our message? What's our mission and what's our jobs? So this student goes on, and he says this. He, he believes that the basic point of Christian orthodoxy is that Jesus accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished through his cross and resurrection. And he says all, that, all that's left for us to do then, and what he's saying is, is what the church then says is all what's left for Christians to do today is to bear witness to what has been already achieved. And that's, is that true? Uh, Peter, just there in Acts, said, we are witnesses, we bear witness to this. But what this student, I think, is saying is that when Christians just say, we bear witness to the fact that we're not going to hell because he died for my sins, his offense isn't that we bear witness, it's what he's defined and what he observes the body bearing witness to. So may I use that very Christianized term? Bear witness. How, where do we ever use the term bear witness? I understand that's like not normative. It's a Bible word, so we're going to use it. So what are we bearing witness to? 
I ask you today on this Easter. Jesus did accomplish everything that needed to be accomplished. And as this student wrestled, there's a whole article he wrote. It was interesting that you can tell he's highly influenced by just pictures and images of real-life human beings with skin and bone. And you can see almost in his writing that he's picturing things, experiences, places he's been, messages he's heard. But then he, he goes back to the story. He goes back to the story. When he goes back to the story, he goes back to the person of Jesus. And when he goes back to the person of Jesus, just listen to how the writing shifts. He goes, Whatever Easter is, it cannot be the self-congratulatory triumphalism of the white Western church. That's utterly alien to what it looks like in the Bible. And then he gets into the Bible, and I'm not even necessarily disagreeing with his, his, his bents and his offenses, but this is what I think is vital to point out. He says, Easter happens to a woman who thought everything was lost until she ran into a gardener with a strange, familiar twinkle in his eye. Easter happens to the followers of a failed movement who are hiding from the authorities in a locked room and suddenly their fallen leader materializes in their midst. Easter happens on a beach at dawn where a coward is reestablished as a leader. He says, my favorite line from the original Easter story is John 21, 12, where it says, now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. He says, that's the Jesus I worship, that mysterious figure who doesn't look like the Italian model I've seen in all the paintings. <laughs> but when I see him, something about him says it's the Lord. He's far outside the pomp and circumstance of the triumphalist churches who found all the best practices to capture and retain visitors. He's wandering around cemetery gardens to comfort the bereaved and cooking breakfast on mostly abandoned beaches for fishermen who didn't get Easter Sunday off. I'm not sure Easter has good news for people who are already satisfied with the world the way it is. And that is his real offense. He's offended at a global church who gets up on Easter morning, proclaims triumph, and does nothing more than proclaim victory. If it's actually God's com is this actually God's confirmation email that those of us who are winning in this life will keep on winning in the next one, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. One of my favorite lines in Revelation is when God says, Behold, I'm making all things new. That makes me want to believe that Easter keeps happening, that Jesus cannot be conquered by his church any more than he could be conquered by the grave. I want to believe that Jesus will never stop astonishing the people who think they already know the story backwards and forwards. I pray that he will heal me of my cynicism so that I too can be astonished by Easter. That's a beautiful, vulnerable piece of writing, isn't it? But I want us to then build on that. What does he bring out? It's that Easter is good news, but it's not about being satisfied in the triumph of Jesus, and then we just ride it out till we die and go to heaven or hell. That's not the message of Easter morning. It's not about winning. 
So what are we bearing witness to? Let's go to John 21, that, that passage that this student wrestled with. And let's wrestle with it for a moment. And as we do, I'm going to take a sip of water with my child's leftover apple inside. <laughs> Just a hint of apple. And a large chunk of skin. Not joking if anyone wants to. Yeah. Okay, so that was an accidental comedic pause to transition into chapter 20 of John. I'm going to skim. So reach out your hands towards me, please, and give me the anointing highlight reel, that, that highlight reel anointing. Jesus, the highlight reel anointing right now on this vessel. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay. So the resurrection, chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. The resurrection. In chapter 19, Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. Chapter 20 starts with their most important disciple and apostle, a woman named Mary Magdalene. Now, just so you know, Mary Magdalene has been confused over the years. Many people think that she was a prostitute and that she was the woman that, that washed Jesus' feet. Not true. That wasn't her. Mary Magdalene actually says very limited things in the Gospels about her, but she was at the, the death and resurrection, and obviously the... the uh, did I say resurrection? The tomb. She had seven demons cast out of her. That was her label, what she'd been freed of. She knew darkness, and she knew light. And it says, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. There's so much more there than it was just dark outside. The mood was still dark. The spirit was still dark in her. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, so she ran and went to Simon Peter. And the other disciple. Can you move that clock slightly, Lana Marie, right there so I can see when I need to hurry up? Thank you so much. Beautiful. Okay. <laughs> While it was still dark, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to, him, to, to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. They both ran together. We all know that John makes a point that he got there first because he's a little immature. And then it says in verse 11, but Mary, when they found out there was nothing there, here's Mary's response. She stood weeping. There's going to be three characters that I want to highlight this morning. Mary, Thomas, Peter. One word for Mary, tears. One word for Thomas, doubt. One word for Peter, shame. And I believe what the Lord does in this passage is he highlights, how are you coming to Easter morning? How are you processing the resurrection? Are you processing with your tears? Are you processing it with your shame? Are you processing with your doubts? They're all legal. They all get dealt with. First, the tears. Mary stood weeping. Outside the tomb, and she wept. She stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Perhaps you have to actually see these angels through the tears of love. One's at the head, one's at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they've taken away my Lord. My Lord is the title that you'll see, the only title really used for Jesus in the remaining sections here. My Lord. I do not know where they've taken him. 
Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him. What is that a picture of? They're in a garden again. The story of scripture starts in a garden. And now we have the first Adam in the garden and the last Adam, again in a garden. Humanity was lost. The curse came in in a garden. It was restored in a garden. And the witness, the first witness, is a woman. You cannot make this stuff up. They wouldn't have used a woman. A woman was a non-factor in a court of law. They could not bear witness until Jesus breaks a curse. They also, the early Christians would never have used a woman to try to validate their arguments that Jesus rose from the dead. Why? There's no legal standing in it. It would be a pretty weak plot. Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll make up a story where a woman sees Jesus, and then they'll believe. Because that wasn't the motivation. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. He speaks, even her name, he uses the term, if we were going to translate it, would be closer to saying something like Miriam. In the tongue that would bring her back to perhaps, I think, the first Miriam in Scripture, which is Moses' sister. Who sings a song of freedom? So, in a word, he breathes her name, and she instantly knows who it is. And he shifts the subject, and he breaks a curse with one breath. It's astonishing. And he says, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and he had said these, when he had said these things to her. A couple comments on that. Oh, too many comments. I'm going to abbreviate with that anointing you gave me. Thank you. My favorite scholar... N.T. Wright says this, you would never have known this from the usual Easter hymns, prayers, and liturgies. In fact, we have very few songs that talk about Mary, yet she's the star of this story. If you reconstructed the Easter story from, from our typical hymns, prayers, and so on, you might suppose that when the evangelists wrote up the Easter morning, their main message would be, Jesus is risen, therefore we too shall be raised at the last. That's a typical summation of the Easter story. He's risen. He's risen indeed. We need to do that once today. He is risen. We had to do it once. Okay. But Jesus is risen, therefore we too shall be raised at the last. That is kind of the overarching message of 
the Easter songs, the prayers, the liturgies over the centuries. And while those are indeed true, and it's what Paul the Apostle and what others say, one of the many striking features about the resurrection narratives, meaning in the Gospels, here in John in particular, is that at no point do either Jesus or anyone else mention this future hope, whether heaven, salvation, or even the resurrection itself. All that is left to be worked out in the rest of Scripture and in the early church. What is far more urgent and important than questions of your ultimate destiny in this passage? It's four things. Are you ready? Four things. You might actually take notes on this. They're quite good. One, Jesus really is alive again. Second, number two, therefore, he really is the Messiah, the world's true Lord. Third, therefore, God's new creation has begun. And fourth, and this is the sharp edge of it all, therefore, you have an urgent and important job to do and a new identity to do it with. You have a job to do and a new identity to do it with. We are witnesses, and our job isn't just to proclaim. What's Nike's slogan? Just do it. Is the question, are we witnesses, therefore just watch? Is it, are we witnesses, just do it, or just do something? I think sometimes we do that. We're witnesses, I don't really know what to do, I'm just going to go love on people, do some good, try, just do something. And maybe sometimes you need to hear that kick in the pants. you got everything you need, son, daughter, just go do something. You've got Jesus, and that's fine. But that's not the message here. It's not just do it. It's just be something. It's an identity message. You have an important job to do and a new identity to do it with. That's the message. Therefore, the whole thrust of this long Easter morning story is to take us through the person and eyes of Mary to the heart of the earliest Easter message, which is that Jesus is raised, therefore the world is a different place. And we are called as witnesses to the resurrection to announce it, yes, to make it happen, and to find ourselves remade in the process, where we go out as the same lights as Jesus was, and we burn. He says to Mary, I'm ascending to my father and your father. Huge statement. He tells Mary that the same father of him, the deity of Jesus, we share the same father, Mary. My God and your God. It's a reminder of what he has told the disciples. Our father. It's offensive. Their ministry is the same as his. And on that evening of the first day, I'm here in 19, verse 19 still in chapter 20, the first day of the week, the disciples are in fear. They have the doors locked because they think the Jews are going to come and get them. They're still hiding out, 
And he enters the room through the locked doors or through the wall, some people say. They don't really know, but he appears. And he says this, peace be with you. He says it twice. I don't think they were feeling a whole lot of peace. As the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. He's giving them a job to do, but not a just-do-it job. Not just an observing, witnessing job, but a embrace your new identity as sons and daughters with the same Father and be something for the world to take hold of. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. I've wrestled with that one for a good many moments. Excuse me, are we allowed? Can I now forgive your sin? Is that what it's saying? He doesn't really clarify. This is where I'd love Jesus to just, you know, a paragraph of context here, Savior. Um, What does that mean that we have the power to forgive sins and withhold forgiveness? Jesus says while ministering, after he heals a lame man, he says, your sins are forgiven. Pick up your mat and walk. And then they say, ooh, who is this who thinks he has the power to forgive sins? And he says, well, it's easier to say. Your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat. Healing, wholeness, life, and new creation of what Jesus gave, the ministry of Jesus is in the power of this concept of forgiveness. As a man, he is still depending on the act of the Holy Spirit. And he was still proclaiming to someone forgiveness of sins in the realm of a man in right relationship with the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says these same commissioning words to them. The point of this passage here in the forgiveness of sins and giving them that power is that you have my same ministry. You have a job to do, to be something. And what are they to be? Him. You are not to go and do something but to be something. We are not witnesses to watch. We are witnesses to bear witness that we are living vessels of Jesus. It's beautiful. So then there's this passage with Thomas, the following one. And I want to say one thing about Thomas. I'm just glad that Thomas was there because he makes it very clear that he would never have believed if he didn't get to put his fingers inside the wounds. But he got to. And he represents for all of us the real reality that this man saw Jesus die. And no one has the power to conquer the grave. And the doubter's doubts were answered with an encounter. If you're doubting anything today, if you're doubting your faith, if you're doubting your promises, if you're doubting your future, if you're doubting being in Pasadena, if you're doubting a spouse, if you're doubting, if you want to live, I believe the heart of Jesus is to show you that he embraces those who feel doubt and he wants to encounter you. 
would you just allow him to meet you today? Would you give him one chance? And Peter, the following passage talks of Peter's response. If you don't know the story of Peter, Peter is the disciple who is most into defending Jesus. He takes a sword, he chops off an ear because he was a fisherman, he wasn't a soldier. He had horrific aim. And as he went for the head, he hits the ear. Hello, my precious. Yes. Uh, that sounded creepy. That was like the Lord of the Rings thing. I didn't mean it that way. I love you. Um, he chops off the ear. Jesus puts it back. John doesn't mention that he puts it back. John doesn't like Peter. He leaves the ear on the ground. I'm dead serious. Look. The other, the other gospels mention that Jesus puts the ear back. John does not. John and Peter have a little thing. This is dead serious. So, chops off the ear. A few hours later, he denies Jesus three times. Three times. Three times. The rooster crows. Peter shifts from cavalier to shame. Guilt and shame. Guilt for what he did. Shame for who he obviously is. He can't even last a night when Jesus is dying for all of humanity. And he's carrying that shame. And even after the resurrection and seeing him appear, peace being delivered, he's still lost. It says in in chapter 21, he goes out fishing with the guys again. Why? Because he's lost still. He hasn't found his peace. He hasn't found his calling again. He has no confidence in who he is and where he's going and what his purpose is. Jesus tells him to go out. They come back, nets full of fish. But they, again, have this encounter where they don't recognize him, and then they do. And he says, it's the Lord. He sprints to Jesus. And Jesus restores him by saying three times, Peter, Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. A second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. He said the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, and he goes on. But three times he restores him with the same charcoal fire that was burning the night of his death and his betrayal. Burning at the beach to restore him, to speak life over him, to speak purpose over him, destiny over him. Peter, you are my witness. In a matter of weeks later, this man is going to go before the most intimidating court in the entire known world. And he's going to leave thousands and thousands astonished. This man must have been with Jesus. If you're coming as a skeptic today, there's generally five things that you might say are reasons to believe. One, despite all scientific studies throughout the years, Jesus is not even debated that he's a real figure. We all know that he was a real man who walked and lived and died. It is debated 
this empty tomb. Why? Because it's impossible. Not one shred of evidence in human history has come to the surface to truly make that claim false, the empty tomb. And I know you're here today, and it's like, well, how can we prove that anyway? Okay, that's okay. Again, bring your doubts and just allow the Lord to touch you today. Secondly, the appearances of Jesus. He starts with a woman, and then hundreds more. But not just that he saw and that is accounted that hundreds saw them and it's recorded in historical documents. But he doesn't take well-trained men and leaders and women. He takes them wherever they're at. And the transformed lives that transformed history is the evidence. Not only that, they died horrific deaths because they were absolutely convinced of what they experienced and saw. I heard someone give a, uh, an example recently where Watergate, when that all broke out back in the day, you know how long the people held that lie? It was like a week. No one was going to die for that. It's really hard to hold a lie when you're tortured. Not one person gave up and confessed Oh yeah, we made it up. Not one. The impact on history, and I know everyone is like, well, our calendars are even marked by it, and I get kind of tired of that one, but our calendars are marked by it. It is kind of mind-blowing. The rest of human history and so many of even just the marks of our cities at least in the West. If you watch the church in Notre Dame Cathedral burn in France, such a bizarre, bizarre scene, wasn't it? Where there was utter tragedy at this building that was built, and yet underneath it all, you hear all the horrific things that went into building the building over the years, right? And there's many that are like, oh, good, and are offended that they're going to rebuild it, and all this stuff gets stirred up again. But what is really being stirred up? What's being stirred up is the controversy and the mystery of the Son of God who came, died, and rose. It speaks to the human spirit. Whether you believe or not, it causes controversy. And the experience of billions and billions of people, the fifth evidence. If you need someone to testify today and you just want someone to talk with or pray with, we welcome you today. We welcome you to, to simply come forward and process. Or in the coming weeks, we're always available. We would love to, to walk with you. And join Alpha. We're going to run another one in the fall, which is a course where we explore the foundations of the faith. We are witnesses. I want to end with this. We have a call, we have a job, we have a purpose to be image bearers of this new creation, to be extensions of Jesus. And whether we're coming with our tears today, whether you're coming with your shame today, or whether you're coming with your doubts today, 
The cross is for you. But the cross is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. It's the climax. And it's the beginning of this message of good news, of new creation. New creation is this message that gives us hope and gives us the ability to stare anything in the face, anything where you need breakthrough, and say, my DNA, who I am as a son or a daughter of God, puts me in a place where I cannot see the world around me with the same eyes as I did before the cross.